This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Choosing the correct path in life to go forth down isn't always clear when dilemmas or tough choices come upon us. Be it a relationship or a career decision or a move, all sorts of things can come upon you and that only you can decide which way to go. Because after all, who knows what's best for you more than you yourself, I ask you. Sometimes, trusting yourself to make decisions that line up with your values and leave you feeling confident, excited and having chosen wisely is really difficult. But it's like anything that you attempt. The more that you practice at it, the easier that it gets. Now something beneficial that can help with this, that can help you to navigate life's decisions so they're the best ones, is therapy. I don't mind saying there are plenty of times in the past I've had decisions to make and taking that time out and just talking to someone, it could even be a complete stranger, i found has helped me no end. It's nice to have someone to sound off. Therapy isn't just designed for those who are trying to overcome trauma in their lives or for the rich and famous. Not at all. It's very misleading, that is. Think of it more as a way to help you learn your limits, make positive changes and develop boundaries for yourself and to give you the stepping stones to learn how to cope with all of life's situations. All that good stuff that helps you be the very best version of you that there is. If you're thinking of trying therapy as an option to help make your life the best one it can be, then BetterHelp is a great one to choose. It's designed to be flexible and convenient, and being entirely online, it works around you and your schedule. It's also simple to do, All it takes is just filling out a very brief questionnaire and shortly you'll be matched with a licensed therapist best suited for your needs. If after a time you feel that it's not working out for you that, then you can simply switch therapists no problem and with no additional charges. Let therapy be your map with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash TCE today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. H-E-L-P dot com slash T-C-E. Hello all, and the very warmest of welcomes back to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, coming off the heels of a much-needed break from the show to recharge. And where I'm back somewhat refreshed, several more cases have been added to the running list of this series, and the next few probably, and I'm raring to go. As odd as this may sound, it's been good, to get back to doing what I love doing. I am as ever Paul, the creator, host and true crime enthusiast of the show's title. The hairy football looking true crime enthusiast cat, Peeksy, is here with me as ever. He sat by my side, nuzzling my hand with his head as we speak, as I speak even. And we're completed by yourselves, the wonderful enthusiasts that tune in each time and make me talking to myself in my spare room, justified so I don't feel like a simpleton. That's one of my favourite things to describe someone as that is. Simpleton. It just sounds wonderful. It is as wonderful as ever being back and having you joining us today, which I thank you kindly for doing, and hope that as you have, it's for a tale that finds you and yours all good, all safe, and all well. So, I haven't had an episode out for a few weeks since the previous Patreon episode of the show, and things have been a bit chaotic. I'm currently packing up, preparing to move house, plus it's holiday time in my work as well right now, so it's a bit nuts with lots of cover. But I'm here catching up with myself right now, and most importantly, yourselves. And I'm back with the first of a two-part tale 
which I shall come on to shortly. What I'm also catching up with after a while is thanks going out to my new and returning Patreon supporters of the show, with shoutouts coming here to new friends Essex Wurzel, Cheryl Hardy, Esme Chin, Rebecca Jackson, Cassie, Craig Danson, Joanne Hall and Andy Jackson, plus Laura Nailis, Deborah Sewell, Claire Muirhead and Laurie Bowden-Edge, who have each opted to annually support the show and apologies if I've mispronounced anybody's name there. You each have my gratitude in spades, folks. It's so kind of you to do so, and I thank you. Now, stuff is out on the way to some of you, but all of you should be, I hope, winging your way through the umpteen full-length bonus tales of the show that being a supporter brings for you. Now, if you would like this kind lot, perhaps like some show stuff too, heading out to you, or most certainly access to the multitudes of bonus tales that being a supporter brings you, then it's so simple to do, it really could be Kanye West. Simply head over to Patreon and you can find the show there under the same name and logo and all that, or scratch that and you can just head to the link that is forever in any of the episode show notes, which takes the searching away from you. And once you've chosen your tier, you can be on it quicker than Hugh Edwards playing the mental health card when he was caught out. Listening to tales such as Mr Whiskers, the Butcher of Cumdy, when terror stalked the tunnels, both parts of the Lost Girls of Liverpool, or the latest tale that's out, Behind Closed Doors, to name just a few that are on offer, with another added regularly, and another one coming very soon. So, the tale that I've returned with, for it, we head back to 2010 and to the picturesque West Yorkshire town of Holmfirth, which, History 101 with a true crime enthusiast, is a 13th century town whose name derives from the Old English word holligan, meaning holly, but taken to read as the name of home, compounded with a Middle English word freeth, meaning wood, thus Holmfirth, meaning the woods at home. Why they change freeth to firth, I don't know. But it can't be Hollywood because it doesn't have a massive sign up in the hills there and plus it's not on strike right now. Listeners in the UK may or may not know Holmperth's claim to fame is being the filming location throughout its run for Last of the Summer Wine, a BBC sitcom revolving around an ensemble cast of OAPs not wanting to grow up and instead doing bloody silly things like sliding down a hill in a bathtub and seemingly pointless things like that. Now personally, I always thought it was as funny as being bank frauded myself, but it was a massive success during its run. It ran from 1973 to 2010, and with the exception of programmes that are rebooted after long hiatuses, Last of the Summer Wine is the longest running TV comedy programme in Britain, and the longest running TV sitcom in the world. Good old wiki stats. Sorry Holmfirth, you always look very nice, but that's the best stat that I could come up with concerning you. Holmfirth was also the scene of a crime back in 2010, that is one that I was in quite disbelief at in parts when I researched it, for it reminded me of certain individuals we've met in previous episodes of the show, one in particular though there is no connection by our identical character traits, and that ultimately is a tale that shows just how far a remorseless individual will go to preserve their own selfish ends. 
This truly epitomises the definition of self-centred this tale does. I'm sure there are certain points to do with it also, hopefully excluding the crime, that will resonate with some listeners too, for you may identify with persons or situations that are described. There was so much to it through researching that as often, I found its one so much more workable if broken down into two parts. So what I shall do is save my thoughts and feelings about it largely until the conclusion of the second part, which I shall have to you in a couple of days. The episode contains details and descriptions of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing and or distressing, so please use discretion whilst you're listening in all. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiasts for the first part of a two-part episode, a tale that I've entitled The Romeo. You can meet the people who have the biggest impact upon your life in the most mundane or unexpected of ways sometimes, can't you? Then 29-year-old Angela Rylance's life changed by pure chance when what she thought was the man of her dreams, then 28-year-old music teacher Andrew Lindo, walked into the money shop check cashing shop where she worked in Barnsley in South Yorkshire on Saturday, August the 22nd. 2010. Now at the time she'd been single for more than two years after a 10-year relationship with her childhood sweetheart, the father of her sons Callum and Dylan, had ended amicably. Angela recalled the following year. He was really flirty from the start. I needed his phone number so he wrote it down on a scrap of paper and slid it across the counter to me. He smiled and said, if you wanted my number you should have just asked. I liked his cheeky personality. He held eye contact and told me how attractive I was. He said to me, I never forget a gorgeous woman. And, be honest, who doesn't love or forget a compliment? Now, Angela initially refused to take his number for anything but business purposes, but, flattered and unable to get this handsome, confident stranger out of her mind, A few nights later, she found him on Facebook, took the plunge, and sent him a message. He replied back to her shortly, and they soon began exchanging messages, which quickly stemmed from Facebook messages into texts, often hundreds of times a day. She continued. Straight away, he told me that he was a single parent with two small children, a toddler daughter and a baby son. He said that in January... His fiancée Marie had left the children with a babysitter and gone off abroad with another man. I was stunned that she could have done that and at the same time it made me like Andrew more. But I was cautious too. I thought, what if she comes back? I didn't want to get hurt. Feeling somewhat vulnerable then, a bit of Facebook snooping by Angela discovered Andrew's former partner 30-year-old Marie Stewart, but revealed that her profile contained recent updates concerning the couple's children. Angela continued, When I clicked through to Marie's own Facebook profile, I found really recent entries from her. There was even one picture of them as a family together. I was hurt and angry and texted Andrew telling him never to contact me again. I thought, why would he lie? He explained that she'd come back once since she'd left for a wedding 
Andrew insisted that Marine was suffering from postnatal depression, but still wanted people to think she was just a normal mum, so she'd put several bogus updates on Facebook. I thought it was too strange a tale to be a lie. He was very convincing and very quick with his text replies. Angela decided to give Andrew the benefit of the doubt, and so agreed to a first date with him on Friday, September the 3rd. Still cautious though, she recalled. He bought me a bottle of white wine and a bunch of red roses. All I did all night was fire questions at him, but he didn't miss a beat and he never tripped up once. They began dating and Andrew, ever the charmer, brought Angela red roses every Saturday at work. They met on Tuesdays to have lunch, which was Angela's day off, were in regular text contact each day, and very soon, Angela began to fall in love with the charming man that everybody seemed to like, all of her friends from different walks of life. Their relationship inevitably soon became a sexual one, and he even talked about them moving in together as a family. Examples of messages between the two around this time are as follows. Andrew, can't wait to hold you close, kiss your lips, stare into your eyes so you know how I feel. Angela, it feels a bit like a dream, I couldn't get you out of my head. But, sexual liaisons between the two were always at Angela's house, and where they were expecting to stay with their boyfriend at least on occasion at his place, the excuses for nights they planned to spend together there having to be cancelled at the last minute began to mount up. It seemed that every time she tried to arrange to stay the night for the first time, not an unreasonable request at all, Andrew found a reason to cancel, with increasingly bizarre excuses. Angela recalled. Once, he texted me at the last minute to say he was having to go back to Teesside where his family are because his grandma had died. Later, he said breezily to me that she hadn't died after all, but his granddad had merely made a mistake and that she'd just taken too much medication. That's some mistake, isn't it? Now, unsurprisingly, more and more fed up with this, Angela's natural cynicism remained, and she eventually asked him, only half-jokingly, if she could visit his home to check for other women living there. So one afternoon in October, he drove her to his home, 66 Perseverance Place, in the West Yorkshire town of Holmfirth, though using a bizarre route, which was only with the benefit of hindsight that Angela became convinced was to ensure Andrew was trying to confuse her so she could not ever arrive unannounced at his home. However, she was placated at what she found there, her concerns completely dispelled when she entered the modern three-story townhouse. She went on. There were absolutely no signs of a woman living there at all. No feminine items in the bathroom or bedroom, no jewellery, no clothes, nothing. He could see me nosing around and even said, You can look under the bed, she's not there. It was a joke and I laughed. He showed no signs of being nervous at all. He was relaxed. I didn't open drawers or cupboards or anything. I was convinced. He didn't have time for anyone else. So, the relationship progressed although that ever-promised sleepover still had not happened even after this. 
It is easy to assume that Angela was being naive here, but her parents and friends were also convinced by Andrew. She continued, He would mould himself into exactly what anyone wanted him to be. Around my dad, he was the perfect gentleman. I've got lots of very different friends, and he would fit in with all of them. Everyone thought, this guy's great. He told me I was amazing, I was beautiful. I actually believed him and thought we would get married. And then, at lunchtime on December the 10th, 2010, Angela received a bombshell phone call whilst at work that instantly put her guard back up. She explained. A woman called Karen said, It's about Andrew. Do you realise he's still with Marie? I thought I was going to be sick. I thought, that's impossible. She said Andrew's daughter had spoken about me and Andrew was trying to convince Marie she was crazy. Angela immediately confronted Andrew about this call and he calmly reassured her and told her to disregard it, claiming that the woman was, in fact, Marie herself, still ill and still deliberately trying to sabotage his happiness. But unsure about this, Angela sought further reassurance and so contacted Andrew's sister Catherine, whom she'd not met, through Facebook, asking if she knew about her as his new love and asking her to confirm this, that Marie had walked out on him. Catherine indeed replied to her and confirmed to Angela that she believed Andrew and Marie had separated. Believed. So, Angela again gave him the benefit of the doubt, and then, with massively awkward timing, Angela realised that she'd missed her period, and believing she was pregnant with Andrew's child, told him, recalling, It was early days, but I do think I was pregnant. My head was still all over the place, and I didn't want another child at that point. It was too soon. But he was delighted. So delighted was Andrew that for the evening of Saturday, December the 18th, 2010, it was arranged that Angela would spend her first night sleeping over with him at his house in Holmfirth. She continued. He said he'd pick me up from work that Saturday at 5.30pm, but texted to say he was rehearsing a Christmas production and was running late. He suggested I go to my mum and dad's and he'd pick me up from there. By 8pm, he still wasn't there. In fact, Andrew sent around 30 text messages to Angela that evening, continually explaining that he was running late. Angela continued. At 10pm, he said he'd stopped for petrol. Next, he said he'd been stopped by the police and breathalyzed. Finally, about 11pm, he arrived and was very apologetic, especially to my parents. He sat on the sofa next to my dad and apologised for smelling, saying he'd been dancing around all night and he was sweaty. He also had both of his children in the car with him, so they then left immediately. Ready to go, determined to go, Angela went on. In the car, his daughter asked for her mum and Andrew said to me she was always like that when she was tired and asked for Marie before bed. It was the first night I'd spent with her, so I had no idea. 
Andrew turned to her and said, You're just tired, sweetheart. Go to sleep. You know mummy's not here, darling. Back at his house, when they pulled up outside, Andrew warned Angela that the house smelt, she recalled. He said one of the children's nappies had come off and there'd been an accident on the stairs. Sure enough, there were stains, but he'd covered them in vanish. I went into his bedroom and the bed had been stripped. He said he'd washed the sheets because I was coming. I remember that as a nice gesture. However, that same night, Angela began bleeding and she believes that she miscarried their child, she recalled. Andrew was very upset. We hugged each other and he had a tear in his eye. He said, my poor baby, I'll never hurt you. I was in a lot of pain and he was very attentive, stroking my hair and saying, don't worry, we'll have children at some point. The following day, Andrew seemed unusually tired and they had a lazy day flopping down on the sofa to watch the Chronicles of Narnia on DVD together. Angela even fell asleep with his daughter and woke to find Andrew standing and staring at them, saying, You look lovely together. The following weekend, on Christmas Day, as Angela's children spent the afternoon with their own dad, she had lunch at Andrew's house after Andrew had spent time with Marie's family who had presents for their grandchildren. Angela explained. We had a toast over our meal and Andrew said it was his best Christmas ever. There were lots of Christmas cards, but none addressed to Andrew and Marie. I'd have noticed that. I asked if Marie had sent anything to the children and he said not. It was heart-wrenching that their mum had sent nothing. I wanted to make Christmas special for his children because their mum wasn't around. There was a haphazard Christmas tree in the corner of the room and Andrew's daughter said, Mummy helped me to decorate the tree. Straight away, Andrew came through from the kitchen and said to her, Oh, don't be silly. Me and you put that tree up. Later, he sent text messages saying I'd made Christmas so happy for him. Everything just felt too good to be true. I was in a big bubble. Angela says that their relationship really progressed from that point. They toasted New Year's Eve 2010 in with friends at the house. Facebook messages from Andrew to her went along the lines of Love you sweetheart, miss you baby, want to wake up with you every morning or Love you future wife. And Angela and Andrew even began looking for a larger place for them all to move into together even going to see a few properties with Angela's parents. She soon started spending two or three nights a week staying with Andrew in Holmfirth, but over time observed some unusual habits that, of course, when viewed in hindsight, now take on an appalling significance, which I shall come to explain about throughout the tale. Angela continued, He never had the heating on, and my nose was always cold. If I turned it on, he'd turn it off and bring blankets out. I just assumed that he was conscious about the bills. He also always had scented candles lit all over the place too and started buying them in pink and green, our favourite colours. He had one permanently lit downstairs where the door to the garage was. 
That door was always locked and there was no key. He also had a burner that he put eucalyptus oil in, which gave off a really strong smell. Now, some people just like their place to smell nice, don't they? I'm massively fond of a plug-in or a wax melt myself, I must admit. But, there can be other reasons for this. As one Sunday afternoon in February 2011, Angela was to find out in the most unimaginable way possible. On the afternoon of Sunday, February the 13th, a convoy of police officers arrived at 66 Perseverance Place whilst Angela was inside with her own and Andrew's children. They were armed with a search warrant and a speechless Angela was told that Andrew was being taken into custody regarding a missing person, for at the time he was being arrested simultaneously whilst having Sunday lunch at a nearby pub with Marie's family. And then, as his son Callum asked her why officers were stationed outside or were tying police tape around the house, Angela herself was then arrested on suspicion of the murder of Marie Stewart. Shortly afterwards, finding herself in a holding cell, a shocked and confused Angela recalled. The police said they'd found a body in the garage. I was in complete shock. I said, What? I thought, How could Marie have died? When did she come back? It's strange, but I didn't even consider that Andrew could have done it. Following a report from Marie's concerned family, who it transpired by that point had had no verbal contact with her for almost two months, that Sunday afternoon, police had indeed subsequently searched the home that the couple had shared, and where, in the locked garage, crammed inside a Virgin Atlantic flight bag and placed underneath a disused carpet, they discovered Marie Stewart's badly decomposing body. The locked garage of the home that, up until two months before, Marie had shared with Andrew Lindo. After a night in a cell, following a recorded interview and a physical examination, Angela Rylance was de-arrested by police and released without charge at 10pm the following day after they realised she had nothing to do with it. For she was then told that far from being an abandoned single parent, Andrew Lindo, in his police interview, had admitted to killing Marie Stewart on the evening of December the 18th, 2010 and subsequently concealing her body in the garage of their three-storey home, the first night that Angela had spent at his house in Holmfirth. A later post-mortem examination showed that Marie's cause of death had been due to multiple stab wounds and blunt force trauma to the head, and Lindo told officers that he'd intended afterwards to bury her body in the nearby Holmside Memorial Gardens. But, I quote, had not got round to it. Like that's something you put off doing, a trivial detail such as that, isn't it? Getting rid of a body. Angela recalled. I was dazed. I couldn't work out when he'd done it. My whole relationship with him flashed before my eyes. Then, I hated him. There was no disbelief. I just felt hatred for him. I thought, you bastard. How could you put me through this? How could you put the children through this? 
I only found out later in court how he'd killed her. It only kicked in later that I had to come to terms with the fact that Andrew wasn't the man I thought he was. Later the same day, Marie's father Robert laid two bouquets of flowers outside Marie's home. One carried the heartbreaking message from her children, To Mummy, love you always. The other was from Robert, Marie's mum Helen, and her sister Katie. It read, To Marie, we will miss you always. Love Dad, Mum, and Katie. During a three-minute hearing on Thursday the 17th of February, wearing steel-rimmed spectacles and dark blue prison-issue sweater, 28-year-old Andrew Lindo appeared in the dock at Huddersfield Magistrates Court, where he spoke only to confirm his name, age and address, as he was formally charged with the murder of his partner Marie Stewart at their West Yorkshire home, sometime between December the 17th of the previous year and February 14th of that year. He did not once glance at his alleged victim's family, including his sister Katie and father Robert, who wiped tears from his eyes, and who were sat in the public gallery just yards from Lindo. Prosecuting counsel Carol Lawford requested that the matter be sent directly to Crown Court for the accused to appear before a judge, a request unopposed by Lindo's solicitor Colin Byrne, and so chairperson of the bench Brian Castle then remanded him in custody to appear before Bradford Crown Court at 10am the following morning. He was then handcuffed to a security guard and taken from the courtroom. When he appeared the following morning during a 20-minute preliminary hearing, lawyers representing Lindo told presiding honorary recorder of Bradford, Judge James Stewart Casey, that although Lindo was yet to enter a formal plea, he would accept responsibility for the killing. There would be no issue as to the cause of death or who perpetrated the killing, but to admit only to manslaughter as his solicitor Colin Byrne confirmed that provocation relating to things said and done by the deceased would be one of the issues at trial. The defendant accepts and has accepted through the interviews that he was responsible for the killing, said Mr Byrne. Judge Stewart remarked that Linda had also admitted responsibility for putting Miss Stewart's body in the suitcase and the question was what caused him to kill her. However. Prosecutor Jonathan Sharp Casey retorted that a guilty plea to manslaughter would not be accepted by the Crown, adding, Our inquiries are being directed very largely towards an investigation of whether we can disprove both the defence of loss of control, as it will be, and whether we can throw any light on the true, we say, factual reason for the attack, and indeed, whether we can narrow the date of it down. Mr Justice Stewart told Lindo, who again had only spoken to confirm his name during the hearing, You've heard what's been said, Mr Lindo. Your trial will take place on the 30th of August. You'll be remanded in custody until that time. You'll have to return to this court for a plea and case management hearing on the 2nd of June. Lindo was then taken away to custody. Three weeks later, a letter in his handwriting arrived for Angela at her workplace. She recalled, I was shaking and I felt sick. 
it said that he told police the truth, that he loved me and hadn't wanted to involve me in this mess. He was upset that I hadn't contacted his family. He mentioned the Bruno Mars song, Just The Way You Are, which he used to sing to me, and said that he still wanted us to get married, although he accepted that it was unlikely. It's been so hard emotionally. You can but imagine, can't you? So, where on earth does such a complex story such as this, with so much I've brought already seeming to contradict itself, begin? The son of a property developer and financial advisor, born in Stockton-on-Tees in 1982, Andrew Lindo was brought up on Teesside and attended Our Lady and St. Bede's School in the town, where, as he grew, he devoted his attentions to his two main interests, one of which was music. He became an accomplished musician, beginning with playing the tuba as a member of Tees Valley Youth Orchestra in the late 1990s, and then moving on to classical piano and guitar, before he went on to study A-level music general studies and English literature at Middlesbrough's St Mary's Sixth Form College, performing in a number of local bands as he did so, and honing his craft. Pursuing a career in music, but with a teaching angle of it in mind, in the early 2000s, Linda would enrolled at Huddersfield University in West Yorkshire, where he read music and became good and firm friends with another student there named Martin Waldron whilst doing so. In 2005, Martin had married Marie Stewart, a then 25-year-old fellow undergraduate studying health and community studies, and then 23-year-old Lindo would certainly have been a guest at the wedding. It isn't reported, but perhaps he was even best man for Martin on the day. However, Marie and Martin's marriage wasn't to last very long, because only shortly after their nuptials, Marie and Lindo began an affair, and by the time the affair was discovered, or was revealed, in 2006, it had shocked all who knew them, and lost them friends on both sides. Yet, according to her friend Holly Carter, this was not enough to dampen her passionate fires, for Marie had very quickly fallen for Lindo, whose charm and looks had swept her off her feet, and left her, I quote, very much in love with him, the happiest she had ever been, Marie had said. By 2007, with Marie giving everything up to be with him, the couple had even set up home together, and Marie had fallen pregnant. She and Lindo became devoted parents of a little girl, Isabel, in October 2007, and in January 2010, Isabel was followed by a son, Joseph, for the couple necessitating the need for them to move to a larger house, and 66 Perseverance Place ticked every box. More than one person who knew them remarked later that they seemed almost the perfect family. It was a statement echoed several times through research, that was. And indeed, being a mother suited Marie. Her sister, Katie, said that before her daughter had been born, she'd never thought of her sister as maternal herself but she turned out to be a fantastic mum. These were sentiments echoed by Louise Shackleton, who lived next door to the family in Holmfirth, and who described Lindo, Marie and the children as a normal, everyday, happy family, 
and Amanda Utley, who was in a relationship with Marie's father Robert, and who, when asked later to describe Marie, said, Loving, caring, the children were always at the forefront of her mind. They were her world. She was an absolutely wonderful mother, always doing things with the children, always talking about them a lot and their progress. Now, when Joseph was almost eight months old, following her maternity leave, Marie had returned to her chosen vocation to work in, with children. When she was a child, her mother Helen was a rainbow guide leader, and as well as enjoying guiding herself, Marie would help with her mother's rainbows group, which her friends and family recognised as a stepping stone to the lifelong ambition she had to work with young people. It was a drive that took her through education, qualification and into the world of work, punctuated of course by the births of Isabel and Joseph, and by September of 2010, Marie had started work as a teaching support assistant at Holmfirth High School, where her role involved the intense supervision of a pupil there who had very challenging difficulties, including cerebral palsy, epilepsy and autism. Then acting head teacher Gail Howe recalled, Marie's dedication and commitment to her work helped to make her a great asset to the school and she came with a wealth of experience and expertise from her work within the field of special educational needs. She quickly settled into the life of the school and the community. From the outset she was calm, professional and extremely competent in her role of supporting the needs of the students in her care. A colleague of Marie's, Dawn Bowers, echoed this, saying, She was very conscientious about her job. She loved her job. She was very good at it. It was very demanding, both physically and mentally, but she never shirked those demands. She was a very caring and conscientious woman. She'd do anything for anybody. However, Dawn added that Marie was worried about her work-life balance after returning to work and had talked about reducing her working hours, saying, she felt she wasn't able to spend enough quality time with her children, who at the time were almost three and eight months old respectively. Marie's family had noticed something too. Both her mother Helen and sister Katie were to later confirm that following the birth of Joseph, although the couple were coping reasonably well, despite the pressures of moving to a new house with a newborn child, by September 2010, in Helen's words, Marie didn't seem as bright and bubbly as she normally was. There was something not quite right. Katie agreed, saying that by the time her sister returned to work that month, she was worried Marie may have some sort of depression. Now, on the surface, Marie was in a lot better stead than many people who have depression. Certainly not all, for that's a black dog that can affect anybody to different extents, regardless of status or affluence. But certainly some, for Marie had a nice home, a family who loved and supported her, two beautiful children that she doted on, a job that she loved, excelled at and was well regarded in, and of course, the man of her dreams, who following Joseph's birth, she'd even gotten engaged to on Valentine's Day. So, on the surface, a lot more going for her than some people. It couldn't be any of those factors playing on her mind, stopping her being bubbly and bright as usual, 
surely. Now, when he'd left Huddersfield University, Lindo had gotten a job at Henry Ward School in Brighouse in West Yorkshire as he was studying to get a teaching certificate himself. He was also working as a musician in several local bands, including one called Battered Soul, and in September 2008, he began working as a freelance music tutor at the Take Two Academy, a private music school in the village of Birdwell, close to the M1 motorway near Barnsley. Here, he was one of a number of vocal tutors at the centre, which is run by husband and wife directors Susan and Jeff Whitfield and who both later described him as reliable. Susan Whitfield went as far as to say he was very charming, very confident, very chatty. But for me, Jeff hit the nail on the head, for though he agreed with his wife's description, it was the comment he added as a footnote, saying, I would say he was a ladies' man. He certainly felt comfortable in the company of ladies. Because this really does sum up the second main interest in Andrew Lindo's life, pursuit of the opposite sex. In pursuit of his own sexual gratification, Lindo had no scruples whatsoever, and leaving a trail of broken hearts in his wake, betrayed anyone's trust without a pang of guilt or remorse. An extrovert with good looks, a boyish smile and natural charm, Lindo had, beginning in his teens, discovered how easy it was for him to impress the opposite sex and became an outrageous womanizer. He didn't balk at the boundaries of his goal already being in a relationship either, as we saw with he and Marie getting together, perhaps his selfish mind enjoying the excitement and challenge of pursuing more so because of this, and nor did himself being in a relationship with the mother of his children stop him or even slow him down. To him, monogamy and faithful were just bang-on words to get on countdown. In fact, he was in and out of beds like a gardener's fork. More than likely beginning long before he started working at the Take-Two Academy, most likely not long after he started the affair with Marie, the sordid reality is, is that the accomplished liar was involved in a string of affairs with women whom he charmed, and following the birth of Isabel, even misled into believing he was a single parent to take pity upon him. In what was an amazing feat of smoke and mirrors though, all the while he was living with Marie, he managed to keep multiple affairs on the go in parallel and even removed all traces of her from their home during assignations he managed to have there with several lovers, making out that it was a bachelor pad so successfully that none of them suspected he lived there with a partner. Two former teaching colleagues at the Take-Two Academy were prime examples of Lindo's gall and deceit. By the time he got engaged to Marie on Valentine's Day 2010, he had been in a five-month sexual relationship with then 26-year-old fellow tutor Alison Dorham, while simultaneously conducting another affair with another tutor there, Amy Wilde. He was also at the same time suggestively texting the mother of one of the students there who had caught his eye. Dance teacher Miss Dorham said later, Andrew was really friendly and easy to talk to, a charmer, and the more I got to know him, the more I fell for him. I believed that I was in a relationship with Andrew exclusively. 
For a while, Lindo stopped Alison and Amy finding out they were both seeing him at the same time by telling them both that the other fancied him and was jealous. But when Alison saw Marie's Facebook status indicating that she was living with Lindo and not having walked out on him and the children as she believed, for a time, he managed to convince her it was merely a tactic in their custody dispute over their daughter. However, uneasy about this, Alison ended the relationship for good after reading on Facebook that Marie's status had been changed to engaged to Andrew on Valentine's Day 2010. And when the confused and emotional tutor spoke to her friend Amy Wilde for support, it was then that she discovered that married Amy had also dated Lindo the previous October for an unspecified period of time, though a relationship she claimed amounted to merely going out on dates with him, with some kissing and cuddling involved. Which sounds like an affair in my book, that does. Now eventually, the two women went round to his house in Holmford to confront him about this, but reportedly didn't manage to speak to him about his deception. It isn't reported as to whether or not either woman contacted Marie about this either, though you would have thought that with any decency, both would have. But amazingly, it seems unlikely that either did, for there are no reports of Marie and Lindo splitting up. Rowing, yes, as I shall come on to explain in a bit, but not splitting up. Regardless, a close shave such as this didn't stop him or get him to change his ways. Certainly by August of that year, he was beginning another affair, this one with Angela Rylance, and he was at least indecently messaging one other young woman. This one, a then 15-year-old girl, one of his music students. Now, exactly how many affairs he had been involved in, or was involved in, or even how many women Lindo was trying pursuing relationships with, is unknown. But at the time of his arrest and remand, it's reported that police were looking into a possible 10 different women he was pursuing. Simultaneously, yet unbeknownst to each other, the four women I've mentioned here were simply those named later in court. It's not known how many women he deceived, but there are thought to be several others who have never come to light, perhaps being too ashamed to. Now, reportedly, by the beginning of December, Marie's sister Katie and a friend of hers, Karen Lux, had both been shoulders for Marie to cry on because she'd begun to despair at the state of her relationship. She told each of them that in the months leading up to December, she'd felt increasingly like a single parent, because Lindo was never there and was always working. Perhaps reflecting upon how they got together, and the basis that their relationship had been built upon, plus knowing the old saying that a leopard never changes its spots, it has to be likely that Marie had become suspicious Lindo was cheating on her. Eventually, Marie and Karen managed to trace a woman named Angela Rylance, most likely detective work through Facebook, looking at who would commonly be in with the likes on posts of Lindo's, or who would always be in there with a comment, and lo and behold, found on the relationship section of Angela's profile, in a relationship with Andrew Lindo. Karen Lux and Marie also noted that Angela's phone number was visible on her Facebook profile too, and so Karen called her to find out the truth, 
where a bemused Angela confirmed that yes, she'd been seeing Lindo for four months. This is the telephone call I referred to in Angela's account at the start of the episode. Karen recalled later. Marie was absolutely devastated. She was just really upset. She slid down the wall and scrunched up into a ball and cried. Angela was upset too. She said she'd been seeing Andrew for around four months and that they'd spent a lot of time together. As I said before, when Angela had understandably challenged Lindo about this, he told her it was simply Marie causing trouble, describing her as mental and saying, she'll stop at nothing to ruin my happiness. Now, like me, do you already not like this bloke or what? Karen looks further that Marie had then said that was pretty much it for them as a couple. She couldn't forgive Lindo, but was worried about the welfare of their two young children. This was the 10th of December. Now, the following evening, Marie and Lindo had a furious row outside their home, as their next-door neighbour, Luke Fielding, later told how he and his family had heard them and looked out of the window to see Lindo and Marie sitting in a car outside their home, with Lindo who was sitting in the passenger seat, leaning into the driver's seat where Marie was sitting. Mr Fielding recalled later, It must have been loud, because we heard it through the window. When he heard Marie call out, You're biting me, Mr Fielding took it upon himself to go outside to break up the row, and once he had, Marie went inside. Mr Fielding said Lindo then shortly appeared at his front door, gasping and crying, saying that Marie was trying to make him out to be something he wasn't. Shortly after this, the row had continued, as the neighbour on the other side, Louise Shackleton, later told how she'd seen Marie throwing clothes out of the window, whilst Lindo stood on the lawn, trying to gather them up. The next week, leading up to the Christmas break, must have been a pretty tense one in the household of 66 Perseverance Place with I can imagine several other terse discussions, shall we say. Yet apart from Karen Lux, Marie does not seem to have confided the news that Linda had been having an affair to anyone else. No one reportedly seems to have challenged him about such a revelation, and she saw her father Robert at least once during this period, and although he described her as somewhat quiet when he did, otherwise she was normal Marie. Now, perhaps this was Marie just focusing solely on getting through Christmas for the sake of Isabel and Joseph, compartmentalising her problems and preparing dealing with her and Lindo's relationship woes following the festivities, which does seem likely because when Karen Lux last saw Marie on the afternoon of December the 18th, she later confirmed this with Karen saying that Marie had claimed she was going to stay in the house with Lindo and the children until after Christmas before looking for new options, adding, she didn't want to cause any upset or upheaval to the children, and she was staying at home. Yet, according to almost everyone who knew her, flying in the face of this claim, Marie was gone by the next morning, off to have fun in the sun. Karen Lux said later, it just wasn't like Marie to just leave, it didn't make sense. None of it made sense. It didn't make any sense to Karen, to any of Marie's friends, and certainly not to her family, 
for it seemed that that December, just a week before Christmas, Marie had finally had enough and had left, walking away from an unhappy relationship. Yes, and perhaps she did need some time to get her head straight to weigh up her options going forward. That would make some sense, and you could empathise with that. But leaving the two children she adored also, just before a Christmas she had told friends she was looking forward to, because Isabel was now that much older and able to appreciate the magic of it that much more, that was what didn't sit right with everyone. And unsurprisingly, people were quick to try and get in touch with Marie. And Marie did correspond back with them over that Christmas, and well into the New Year period. Well, to an extent, anyway. Or did she? Well, I shall explain all in the concluding part of the Romeo, because that is a perfect place to leave this tragic tale for the time being, and I shall have the concluding part out and with you in just a couple of days, or next, depending on when you're listening to this, of course. Tragic story this one, featuring certainly one of the most unlikable individuals I have ever come across. They seem to just keep ramping up here, they really do. I'm pretty sure you have an idea of my thoughts so far throughout the tale, but I shall save my wrap-up for the end of the concluding part. With that then, all that remains for me to say is that I thank you for joining me in the MOG today, and that I've been, I still am, and hopefully still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you all good and safe times, and I shall speak to you very soon for part two. Take care all, stay safe, and goodbye for now.